Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here today. And welcome back to another episode of Means of Creation, a weekly show where we are deep diving into the passion economy and the future of work. I'm your host, Legion, along with Nathan Bashez. And today we are joined by our special guest and fellow Taylor Swift fan, Nadia Ekbal, who is currently the head of writer experience at Substack. She previously worked on developer experience at GitHub and also did research at Protocol Labs. And earlier this year, she published a book called Working in Public, which delves into open source software development and all of the dynamics around creating open source software and maintaining it. In the book, she also discusses the role of platforms like Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, and Instagram in reducing distribution costs for creators, but also increasing the scope of their interactions with their audiences. And I've been looking forward to this conversation all week because developers are a segment of the creator economy that we haven't talked about on the show yet. And so we'll explore the parallels between open source software developers and other types of online creators today, and also discuss more about her work with writers now at Substack. So without further ado, Nadia, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to start with There's probably some audience members who are familiar with open source software, but probably a lot that aren't. But it would be really helpful if you could just give us like a super high level, quick overview of what open source software is and who are the major roles slash personas of the people who are involved in the ecosystem. So yeah, open source, the easiest way to think about it is it's just free and public code that's available on the internet. And it's licensed in such a way that anyone can just take that code and use it for whatever they want. And that means everyone from your random hobbyist software developer on the weekend can like Google around, find some code and put it in their software project. But then also really big companies like banks or like healthcare software or Facebook or Instagram or whatever, like all those developers also are theoretically using code that is available and just sort of like made free and public on the internet. And so then the question is sort of like who makes all this code and makes it available to everyone else? It's And it's just anybody literally in the world that like, feels like writing and publishing their code online. So it's not that different from any other sort of content creation. And yeah, a couple of like personas that you might think about in an open source project. These projects are, so each open source yeah piece of code is called like a project. And you might have one or like multiple developers that are maintaining that software for other people to use. And yeah, you might have uh, software developers at Facebook or something that are like relying on the code that like volunteer developers are just like making and providing to the public for free. And so you have roughly, there's like these, what we call like maintainers or core developers of a project. And those are the people that are like the leaders of the project. And they're like making the decisions across the whole project and deciding like what contributions are going to be accepted. And then you have like active contributors or people that are not necessarily running the project, but are like veterans or longtime members of the projects that are also making major contributions, but maybe specific to certain like areas of the code. And then you have this like very long tail of like casual contributors um, to open source code, which because it's like, because it's public, anyone can make a contribution to the code and the maintainers like review that and decide if they want to accept it. And yeah, like literally anyone, if you can go on GitHub and find a project and make a contribution to it. And so there's this very like long tail of like casual drive-by kind of contributors that might not really know that much about the project, but are trying to like make small fixes or fix a bug or a typo or something like that. And that relationship between the leaders of a project and this sort of like long tail of casual contributors is part of the really just like interesting social dynamics at play because you're, you can imagine like if you publish like a blog post or a video or something, and suddenly you have tons of people that are like emailing you or commenting and being like, you should do this instead, or you should change this part of your post. It's, it's really overwhelming in some cases for very popular projects. And so that dynamic is not dissimilar from what like a lot of creators experience with their own audiences and their fans. I think for a lot of people out there, like they don't realize to what extent open source is all around us. And they're probably using a lot of products that use open source code, like Android or the Firefox browser and a lot of other products. I've never thought that deeply about open source and all of the work that goes into maintaining it. And I was curious if you could help us like draw some parallels between the open source software development worlds and what we can learn from that about other content creators of all sorts in general on the internet? Yeah, so I think like part of it is this sort of like the interplay of maintainers and contributors on a project. As I was saying, that's not dissimilar to creators and their audiences and fans where you have people that at like various stages of like interest or skin in the game in your projects, similarly to 
I actually remember thinking about this at the Taylor Swift concert because it's like she has her like fans, right? And like the longtime people that have been following Taylor Swift forever. Then you have everyone from like your longtime fans to like people that are occasionally just like commenting about Taylor or like making rude comments on the internet or whatever. And like all those people are like oriented in this world towards like Taylor Swift, right? Like they all have some connection to her, but like their relationship with her might be really different. different. And so yeah, that's something that just like maintainers have had to learn how to um, navigate, I think, in a way that creators can really learn from because the, I think that the, the big difference with something like open source software versus any other sort of content you put out is that people are very actively relying on the work that you're doing. And so a maintainer doesn't necessarily have the luxury of saying, I don't actually feel like reviewing this contribution right now, or someone reported a security vulner- vulnerability, and I guess I'll deal with it later. There's a lot of pressure on these people to to maintain these projects. And you mentioned like Android and, and Firefox, but really it's like everything, because even if the app you're using is not open source, they're relying on open source code. So your Facebook, uh, Instagram, YouTube, Spotify, like all these things are using open source code. And so if you're just like a random volunteer developer that is maintaining this code, um, and something goes down or something breaks, like it's like everyone is just expecting you to fix it. And so it makes the stakes a lot higher in terms of like, how do they manage contributions? And I think maintainers have just learned how to adapt to that in ways that like other creators uh, might have the liberty to say, I'm just never going to read any comments, but right. it doesn't have that same luxury. What are some of the adaptations? I think they're, they've gotten good at a, a couple of things, like one automation and tooling and just like ways hmm. to like, get rid of as much human work as possible. So there's a lot of, and this is the benefit of being a developer and like being able to just sort of make the tools to solve your own problems. But I think they've gotten a lot better at things like requiring like templates and automated checks when people are making contributions that you don't have to go through and make sure that this thing is not going to like totally break your piece of software, like testing and things like that. A lot of it is just like learning how to say no or like gentle gatekeeping. And it was interesting, like for the book, I went back and was just like trying to read pre-existing literature around managing online communities. And it seems like a lot of this stuff was present in like early on in our understanding of online communities that if a newcomer is coming to your project, you there is like some socializing or like education you have to do to get them ramped up. Yeah, someone that is just like coming to your project for the first time is not the same as someone that has been contributing for years and years. Totally. And there is some yeah, j- gate, gate, yeah gatekeeping and education, things like that. And I actually lost that somewhere in the middle of the, how we think about online communities where I think for a while it shifted to treat everybody as open the floodgates as much as possible. And then we realized like, oh, that doesn't really work because humans are humans and it just uh, yeah. yeah it turns into chaos very quickly so i think they've they, they can do a good job at like bringing that aspect back totally yeah. the idea of having better onboarding for fans is so fascinating to me because if you think about the experience of i recently got into a podcast that's called accidental tech podcast it's been around for years and years they've got lots of fans they've got lots of inside jokes they have all sorts of stuff and it's very like hard almost to get into it because it's not like they're when they're talking in their podcasts, like a lot of it is understandable for, because they're just talking about the news or whatever else. And it's like a general conversation, but it also, it's clear that there's a lot of history that I'm like missing. And I wonder what that would look like if more creators focused on like creating roles, creating onboarding, having like the way that companies think about it is like a user journey or something. Like maybe there's more thinking that could go into that from platforms and from the creators that use the platforms. I was just like thinking, like fan like wikis and stuff are really big for any tv show ends up having like this whole like wiki that yeah it's easy to get all the trivia that you need and learn i'm reminded as we're talking about this app that like hit the spotlight last week called hype simulator yeah i think that's the name of it hype simulator and it basically simulates the experience of being a famous creator and you download it. And I think it basically floods your social profiles with likes, comments, follow requests, both trolley comments, super positive comments, like just replicating the experience of what TikTok or Instagram would look like if you were, for instance, Charlie D'Amelio getting a thousand likes per minute or something like that. And it's interesting because I think it gives people a taste of how overwhelming it can feel like to have so mm. much attention. And I think that has a lot of parallels with the content that you write in your book about how depleting and taxing it can feel to have all of these maintainers asking, to have all of these contributors asking for things from the maintainers and having to have the onus and and the burden of maintaining 
a project basically into perpetuity. I think that that um, point you made drawing the distinction between a content creator versus an open source maintainer is really interesting because a content creator, I think maintenance, like they definitely create and they distribute similarly to an open source software developer. But I think the maintenance piece is not as is not as taxing. I'm curious to get your reaction to that. It's yeah, I think it's not as taxing in the sense of when I release like a video, I'm not having to go back and edit that video in the same like literal way that an open source developer has to edit their code all the time. But I was trying to draw, and I wish I flushed this out more in the book, but it was still like nascent for me. The idea that like the equivalent version for most other creators is maintenance of their reputation. So it's like the pressure to continuously release like new things and always do something fresh or else eventually your fans get bored and leave. Whereas theoretically, like you could be an open source developer that is just famous for one project and you just like stay there. And the expectation is you're maintaining that project, but like more rarely people are like, oh, what's your next big thing? Whereas with like creators, it's yeah, maybe I made one like one video that went super viral. And then now I have this choice to make of, am I just the person who's famous for that one really viral video? Or do I become like a personality and a star and start making lots of these things and the pressure to continue doing that all the time, I think is like a similar version of maintenance. Yeah, for sure. I think that that what you highlighted about maintaining reputation for all types of content creators is really interesting. And I think the emergence and the popularity of subscription content now, like mm. paid subscription content exacerbates this in a way, because a subscription is almost like a, it's like a tacit contract between the audience member and the creator to continually create content on a regular basis forever in contrast with old models of advertising or tipping or supporting someone on Patreon. It felt like you could just not continue to create, but with a subscription, if someone signs up and is agreeing to pay you $20 a month or something, you have to continue creating, or it feels like you have an obligation to continue creating. I'm curious if you agree with that and whether you think like the subscription model is feels like the creator is opting into committing to maintain something forever definitely yeah there's with every new model there's going to be pluses and minuses to it and there's a lot of security that i think subscription businesses can afford creators and the the upside being that they don't they can really just focus on making things for their fans and their audience and really doubling down on their niche as opposed to having to like have this sort of like more general widespread appeal. I think there are a lot of like improvements for subscription businesses over the previous models of advertising. But then the flip side of it, as you said, is it becomes you're monetizing your ongoing relationship with your fans rather than a specific piece of content. I think there are like ways that can be advantageous in that some of it requires us just thinking about what a content creator does a little bit differently where it's not like being a book author maybe or something where it's like oh I need to release different books or that's like my work product that is coming out or like these specific things that I'm publishing whereas when people are subscribing or following a creator it's it's about the relationship that they have with that person and I think about the relationship I have with my friends or something where yeah we occasionally have these really memorable nights out or like this one thing that like really changed the course of our friendship or was a really defining moment but a lot of times we hang out we're just like shooting the shit and we're like drinking beers or whatever we do and it doesn't every single interaction i have with that friend is not doesn't have to be so deeply meaningful it's not like i'm gonna stop being friends with my friend if they like aren't doing that every time I and mean, i think it's somewhat similarly modeled with um creators and their fans where uh, like yeah, they want to hear from you regularly, but what do you need to put out? We've seen this with some of the like subsec writers that are, I think, doing this well, where it's you don't have to put out a deep 10,000 word essay every single time you reach out to your audience, but maybe you're doing like an AMA or you're doing a guest post or you're doing a discussion thread or something more lightweight that just says, I'm here, or here's some fast thoughts that I dashed off today. And people really appreciate that. I think that's like kind of at the heart of what's so interesting about subscription models is, is that they're, yeah, like they're much more like forgiving. They just want to like know you better. So, yeah. It's been fascinating to see Matthew Iglesias. I think he's doing an open thread like every day or something like that. Oh and it seems to be working like really people I've been like paying attention to it. And I even asked him a question and when he answered, it's just like a basically, Hey, I'm here to respond to your questions and comments every day. And he always has a jumping off point, but it's, I think a lot of creators underestimate how much just being there with something that like it could be lightweight, like 
your core fans actually would be okay with hearing with you a lot more than hearing from you a lot more than most people realize. They think they need to like, yeah, have the life-changing content like every single time. And it's, you do want those that set the reason for the other things to be like valuable or whatever, but it's not that it has to be the only thing. Like people actually like for you to be accessible if you can. It's interesting though. One other thing about the sort of feeling like it's an ongoing permanent commitment or like the fatigue that creators might feel. One thing that Substack has done for that, I think is I've never heard of anyone else doing it, but I think it's really awesome is the ability to pause subscriptions without just canceling or shutting down your thing entirely. So you can just say, Hey, I need to take a break for a month. So anyone who's on a monthly plan, like you just won't pay for that month. Anyone who's on a yearly plan, your plan gets extended basically by an extra month. So it's not 12 months, it's 13 months. And it allows for the kind of like automatic payment relationship to continue, but to be able to take a break if you need to, stuff comes up in life or whatever. Maybe it's like a six month break or something. I just think that that will probably get built into a lot more of these types of platforms. And and I think it really helps. Yeah. Like being able to normalize, think about content creators before we had these subscription businesses, but yeah, we were talking about Taylor Swift's um, reputation elbow and she was silent for so long before then because she just needed to disappear for a bit. But then she came out with this new album. It's not like people are like, oh, Taylor, I haven't heard from you in two years. We, I don't want to listen to your album. It's just, so I think, as you said, normalizing that through things like being able to pause your subscriptions and just say, I'm taking a break. I'll be back later. I should be fine. Yeah, I think there's not enough discussion about this, but I think there's there's lots of implications for the mental health of creators. And I, I hear murmurings of lots of burnout, depression, constant anxiety of like just the tyranny of having to create content constantly and serve your fans. Like content creators on all sorts of platforms across all sorts of mediums are starting to feel this or have felt this for a while. And so I think there's probably a lot that platforms can do to mitigate this. Probably there will be standalone companies that solve for this, but I think just maybe on the part of fans, this awareness that the parasocial relationship that people are forming with creators, it comes with costs on the creators themselves. Definitely. And it is different from, I think, open source, where if you wanted to step down from a project, there's, it's still, I think it's often discussed this feeling of like, I'm being a maintainer forever. But if you really wanted to step down, you could hand the keys over to the project to someone else, because that project is not so specifically tied to your reputation. Whereas if I'm a content creator, like the stuff I'm putting out is like my brand and it's very tied to who I am. Totally. Um, The locus of value is so interesting to me. Like it feels like with creators, there's experiences and patterns of thinking or whatever that cause someone to be able to create things. And the thing itself, each one is like not the point of what you're subscribing to. You're subscribing to the flow of ongoing things. And so there's certain patterns that it fits that are that it, that they fit that make it valuable to you. Whereas, and that's why with like star like talent at media companies, if they leave, a lot of their audience follows, right? Because the locus of value is really inside a person. Whereas at tech companies nobody notices when an engineer leaves. Usually, rarely someone will notice. And so it's very similar with open source where it's like the locus of value is just like in the code. Because if it works, and there are some tools like FFmpeg, extremely complicated, really important. Lots of people rely on it to do like media encoding and transcoding and whatever. I, I don't know if it's the same developer this whole time or but it seems like you could pass it off. And if there's new media formats that become ascendant, you just build support for it in this relatively straightforward way. And it's, it's really interesting how much more economically valuable things are where the locus of value is externalized into some system rather than in a single person's head. I was just trying to think of examples that that weren't like this. And I was thinking about the, I think the Rolling Stones or some like longtime band that have this reputation that is like beyond any one member of the band will go to a concert. I think they're like still performing now and you go to a concert and like, it's not the same members anymore. Yeah. I don't know if that's true for specifically Rolling Stones, but I know for all the kind of like concerts like this where, yeah, like the, the band members change out and people are going because they're not really expecting like the Stones to come out with a brand new album like now or they're not going to be like entertained by novelty, but they're going because they're like, I, I want to connect to what this thing means in the abstract. And yeah, I wonder whether that will be something that people like content creators can mimic um, like yeah. this generation of content creators. I don't know what that would look like though. I think it Saturday kind of Night Live is an interesting example. Collab groups like Hype House. There's a cast of characters and maybe they get rotated out once in a while and there's new members added and older ones that leave, but, but they can continue to capture fan attention because they're part of a group. Yeah. And even Lauren could move on and it would still there's so much embedded in the DNA of what Saturday Night Live is that it would probably feel at least similar for a while. And maybe it glides into like different directions, but yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And even think about it with like Substacks, like if you're, you, I, I don't know how you feel about the same thing, but like, you're doing like everything, which is theoretically, mm-hmm. there's probably a world in which you could step away and everything, the brand would still exist, which is separate from your personal newsletter or like people being, being tied to you. So. Totally. That's a hundred percent part of the goal of the bundle is to make it greater than the sum of the parts and to have some kind of stability for people if they need to take a break for a month or if they need to. I think another interesting example is creators who maybe want to make six things a year and they want to spend a lot of time on that thing, or maybe even just one thing a year, but to have some ability to sustain an audience where it's, you got to keep the channel hot with like frequent stuff. And so it doesn't really it's hard to make it work. I don't know. Maybe some people do make it work as like a subscription offering. It's probably a little bit easier to do that as like a one-off purchase, but one-off purchases are just difficult economically. And so to be able to have complimentary, like some things are maybe coming out like multiple times a week, other things are maybe weekly, other things are maybe monthly or bi-monthly or whatever. And so it, I think it'll allow bundles to almost create a greater diversity of types of content than if it was like a solo newsletter. So hopefully we'll be able to do some more of that kind of stuff. Like we're talking about maybe research reports or whatever other things we can include. Cool. Yeah. I think there's maybe even models where like the creator can, can push off some of the burden of creating onto their community and their readership and, and assemble like a, a support cast around them, almost like a maintainer would have contributors. I This is totally random, but I follow a blogger and I've been reading her work for years called Emily Schumann from Cupcakes and Cashmere. It's a super girly blog. It's about cupcakes and cashmere, so food and fashion. But over the years, the blog has really transitioned from her just her voice and just her content and just her life to where she's now engaged various contributors who also contribute a lot of the content as well. So I think that relieves some of her burden of having to maintain that relationship with her fans and continually produce content into like forever and like spreads the load onto all of the other cast of writers that she's assembled around her. I mentioned an example in the book of Instagram creator who became just so overwhelmed by her comments that she like hired a woman who reads everything for her and then just gives her like a Google doc with the most important things to see, partly to like emotionally protect herself from seeing really negative comments. And then also partly just a time thing, which I'm sure is like extremely common for Mm. a lot of other creators. And yeah, and maintainers have similar sorts of things where you'll have some people that are like core developers and like very focused on working on the code and then some people that might be like triaging issues or being more like in a community manager kind of role responding to people and that sort of yeah division of labor keeps everyone happy it's hard to imagine like i was just trying to think about the blog that you mentioned lee of like i wonder in what ways platforms make this harder because it's it's harder to if you're following like Charlie or someone specifically on TikTok, it's hard to hand the keys over or build things out or invite contributors because you just can't. And maybe yeah. I wonder whether platforms will make that easier over time or. Mm. Yeah. Like user management and all that kind of stuff. Like Substack is yeah. also ahead on this of a lot of other platforms where we can add writers as contributors or admins and there's different levels of like permissioning or whatever within user management in in Substack, which is really nice. James Young in the chat also mentioned the BTS army as an interesting example of enlisting fans to help support, you know, the creators. And I think with BTS army, it's interesting because it's, it illustrates that there's this blurry line between like maybe the originator or center of the the brand, if you want to call it, and like contributors that are maybe hired and then maybe like fans that have some way to participate and help out. BTS Army has gotten a lot of things trending and I think they think of it kind of like a, I don't, I don't have any special insight into the BTS Army fandom, but I just always, when I'm up late at night Pacific time and it's like the, basically there's always something K-pop trending at 2 a.m. Pacific. So um, uh, it's not that I check Twitter when I'm supposed to be writing, but. Yeah. Another example of this is actually our Discord channel, which one of our fans created. Jen is in the chat right now. But yeah, that was something I think we had tossed around it as an idea, but like never acted on. And someone from our community took the initiative to actually create a Discord for this show where it originally started as like discussions after the show about the conversation. And now it's 
grown into something much bigger. So I think that's an, another example of how a creator can be supported by their community. But I also want to transition um, our conversation to Substack, which is a platform that's near and dear to, I think, all of our hearts. Right. So <laughs> Nadia, you've been at Substack for, I think, about a year, and you're the head of writer experience now. Can you tell us a little bit more about your role there and what you do? Yeah, I spend my time thinking about what is the experience that writers are having on Substack, what do they need from us even before coming to Substack or while they're on there? How does a writer's journey grow over time on Substack? And then how do we translate that into education, resources, products, just sort of like how do we infuse that writer experience throughout the rest of what we do? We focus on things like the content editorial, our community offerings, and and also just being a, a go-between point for between the users and, and our products. So, Got it. A, lot of, a lot of things going on. Yeah. Nice. And like over the course of the last year since you joined, obviously there's been so many high profile departures of major journalists who've decided to go independent and are joining Substack. And then there's a really long tail of writers too, who are just signing up for the platform themselves, maybe without previous writing experience. But what have been some of the top learnings for you over the time that you've been there on what are like the biggest challenges that writers face in going independent or just other major insights that you've had? Oh gosh. Yeah. I, I think like one thing that is surprising to me and continues to surprise me is that regardless of how big or small a writer is, it seems like this feeling of, oh gosh, am I good enough? Or will anyone listen? Or will anyone pay for my thing is like persistent or just maybe like endemic to being a writer? I don't know. We're just like plagued by self-doubt all the time. I thought it was just me, but now it turns out. And it's almost like I, I see the confidence almost even for writers that have are just starting out and are yeah have nothing to lose and are just like throwing things out the wall. Those are the people that are almost like most eager and energetic. And then there's some, yeah, maybe like trough of self-doubt that people start to enter. And it's been a, a, a good reminder thing. for me. <laughs> I, I what? Oh, the yeah. The Dunning-Kruger totally. thing. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. That um, I think explains the uh, early energy behind the divination. <laughs> <for> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think about my own writing too. Yeah, I definitely did not really think twice about whatever I put out when I first started blogging. And now I'm like much more self-conscious. And I guess you just have to push through that. But it's been helpful to see... One, it just makes me feel better that no matter how big you get, like it's, but it also tells me that we have a lot of work to do because I, th I think for us, maybe on the inside, you see some of these writers launch and they launch paid subscriptions and suddenly they're making like six figures overnight. And it seems so, for, for me, I'm just like, why don't more writers just do this? It seems crazy to me. Of course, there are some, plenty of writers that need to like build up an audience and, and grow, but like, there's so many writers with amazing fans and readerships right now that are like not making that, that leap. But I think there's, as, as I think about like our work and like, how do we get people comfortable on Substack? There's a lot of work just around helping them manage that psychology and like overcoming that fear and showing examples of it is possible for you to do this and it is possible to be successful in here. I think with any sort of, I think compared to sort of like my experience at GitHub where open source has been around for 20 years and people at within the world of software development, like people are familiar with what it is and like the ups and downs of it with Substack, like writing a newsletter is still like a new medium and writing a paid newsletter is like a whole other thing that people are like wrapping their heads around. And so we're still so early in that um, stage of education and showing people what's possible. Yeah, totally. I'm curious, there's I, a lot of people basically think, oh, the only way to really make money on Substack is for people that already have huge audiences. And I'm curious to what extent you think that's true or for people who maybe don't already have huge audiences, what are the patterns that you've noticed of which ones end up being successful? I think the ones that still take the time to grow a free list, like to me, and we say this, like growing a free list is the first step to going paid. It is, if you're coming in with no reputation, no audience, no readership, and then you expect to launch paid overnight and then make a, a living salary. Like that's just that you, you skipped a few steps there along the way. And so, yeah, I think like we've seen writers grow to making sizable income on Substack, but and even within it might take them a couple months or something. And so a, a fairly like rapid rise, I guess I, I would say. It's not like you necessarily have to be doing this for years before anyone pays attention. I, I experienced this myself as a writer before, before Substack existed, where I felt like overnight, because I started writing about open source and like just took a different angle with it, like it is possible to grow an audience very quickly. But you have to be like thoughtful and strategic in, in how you do it. And yeah, it is this interesting mix of both making it clear that it is possible to do really well on Substack or any of these platforms if you put the work into it, but also balancing expectations of it is a lot of work and you do have right. to think and experiment a lot and, and put yourself out there. 
Totally. Do you think that writers have to make the trade-off between growing their audience versus monetizing at a certain point, given the kind of paywalled nature of the subscription. It feels the first step is obviously to grow an audience and to build a free list first. But then once you decide to go paid, there seems to be a tension between further growing your audience as much as possible versus then monetizing your audience. And I'm wondering what advice do you give to writers on the platform about balancing that tension? So first, I guess the thing that sometimes gets lost is that even paid writers are doing a mix of free and paid stuff. So it's, it's, we do have some writers that will put everything behind a paywall, but the idea of going paid refers to basically like adding paid posts, mm-hmm. but not necessarily not doing anything free. So yeah, and, and we emphasize that it is very important to continue building your free audience because they are sort of like the base of those people eventually do convert into paid subscribers. It's rare that someone's going to come in and start paying off the bat without knowing you at all. Your free list is always going to be a funnel to your paid subscribers. So definitely encourage people to do that. I think it like it changes people's focus a little bit in the sense of, yeah, now you have two different kinds of audiences to to worry about and think about and you're writing different things for them. But a lot of writers have been pleasantly surprised to see that your free list continues to grow beyond a certain size, like often just through like word of mouth or your existing subscribers telling people about it. it still like really blows my mind. I don't have an, entirely have a handle around like how well word of mouth really is working right now as a, a mechanism for discovery and growth. And so you can imagine early on when you're still trying to bootstrap your free list, you're doing a lot of things to try to make things work. You're trying to doing a lot to establish like what you are and make sure people like know who you are. But as your list starts to grow, you do start to get the benefit of those network effects where your existing subscribers are starting to become your fans and tell people about your newsletter. But yeah, I think like any, I think it's true for creators more broadly on any platform. The reason they never end up leaving these big platforms or they try and they, they come back is because they need access to what platforms have to offer, which is continued discovery and, and growth. Substack is becoming a really big platform that could potentially offer discovery. I'm curious if there's any any things there, any thoughts there about yeah. like with YouTube, you upload a video and they just send you people. Could we do the same on Substack soon? Definitely. Yeah, we have plans in the works. Very soon, you'll start to hear more about that. But yeah, we are, I guess, we're we're a company for writers, but we're also for readers. And I think both those things are really core to our mission and like why Substack exists in the world is it's partly for writers to connect directly with their audiences and write things that are meaningful to them and their readers without having to worry about pandering to the great wide world. It's also about readers being able to like control what they read and, and feel like they can curate their their information diet in ways that that don't leave them feeling like exhausted and sad every day. And yeah, I think there's in recent months, we've just felt this increased focus and interest in trying to build out the writer, the reader experience on Substack. And so you'll start hearing about that very soon. Awesome. I think maybe about a month ago, Sam Lesson published a really interesting opinion piece in the information about the implications of the 1000 true fans model on society as a whole, and specifically around how the move to subscription content exacerbates filter bubbles or the implication is that everyone is maybe curating their own portfolio of content that they subscribe to and everyone has like a distinct source of information and people are inhabiting a world in which they're reading and consuming things that like other people aren't and we're just getting more divided into niches as a society as a result of this. I'm curious what you think about that idea and like how does subscription content, how do we reconcile that with filter bubbles and make it such that we still have a common language and a common basis for truth in society? I think the idea that we were ever going to create this sort of like global filter-free way of thinking about the world was just a mistake. And we're going to look back at this time of early 2000s till 2016-ish, honestly, and just be like, I don't know, what what were we thinking there? And I explore this in in the book as well extensively because this is something that open source projects are also feeling where there's this idea that anyone should be able to contribute to a project and theoretically anyone can, like it's, it's like a wiki where anyone can propose a change if they want to. But then there's like this increasing pressure for maintainers to feel like 
oh, I have to accept and or review like every contribution that comes my way, or someone is coming into my project being extremely inflammatory, making demands and threats, and I'm supposed to listen to them because this is open source and I'm supposed to like cater to every single person that comes my way. To me, it seems as just uh, com- like completely implausible as like I'm a popular YouTube creator and I'm going to read, I have to read and respond to every single comment. It's just the communities are meaningful when we make boundaries around them and you want to feel like you're part of something, but like you being part of something means that you're not part of something else. And I think that's actually like important for our sense of identity and understanding like who I am in the world. I'm not just part of this, I don't know, faceless global democracy where I, I don't, it would, I, I feel like it does a disservice to like what makes humans so interesting to, to suggest that we would all like sort of funnel ourselves into being, looking the same, being the same, thinking the same, like we are going to have differences. And sometimes those are going to come up against the boundaries of uh, what we feel comfortable with, or we see someone, we see information or content or something from someone else and we disagree with it. And there are boundaries on like how much stuff I disagree with that I want to see. But yeah, I think it's like this impossible premise that has been set has been set up for the internet of what does it look like to unite everyone together? I just don't think it's um, possible. Right. And yeah, so I think like a, a great thing about Substack is that we are like, okay with that. And we're trying to really emphasize that this is a place for writers to to connect with their readers. And I hope that the way in which we help you organize your subscriptions and connect to writers also helps people. Like we really want to foster a, an environment of healthy dissent and thoughtfulness and like people that really care about high quality content. Like I think you feel that differently with a newsletter post than like a tweet because you just have more context and nuance. And so I'm hoping that goes a long way in helping people it, it, not feel like they're like shutting out views they don't agree with, but are yeah really investing in like what they put into their brains. Yeah. It feels like the sort of inherent contradiction of a lot of these platforms is just a reflection of the inherent contradiction in just liberalism, like lowercase L classical liberalism more generally, which is like toleration of lots of different values or lifestyles or backgrounds, beliefs, values. But there's at some level, toleration is a value. (laughs) And so how do you, do you tolerate someone who's not being tolerant or like, it's really difficult to have a sort of global community or whatever. And it's, I think the platforms are running into this where it's okay. If Twitter's like one big community or YouTube is like one big community, it's got to have some values because the basis of every community is like beliefs and values. And it's hard to have it both ways. And it sounds like Substack's solution to it is to have each community be a little bit more siloed. It's, it sounds, is that kind of like a fair, not totally siloed, but like a little bit leaning more in that direction than the default on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or whatever. Is that a fair kind of characterization, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think of us as this like archipelago of islands, right? And so like there, we might find ways to help more writers. We might like help create like a mainland or something for like more writers to, and readers to find each other on. But I think we'll always make it possible for you to unhook your boat and go way out into the wide sea and do something crazy over there with only the people that want to follow you out there. And I think, yeah, like having that flexibility does give us this enormous advantage over other social platforms that are trying to manage this concept of a global feed. We don't really have that kind of thing. Do you think that there will be more experimentation and iteration on business models for Substack beyond the subscription model? For instance, we were talking with Ayla from OnlyFans a few weeks ago, and she had mentioned that pay-per-view messages is a huge part of the business. So really capitalizing on the super fan effect and their propensity to just pay anything for a greater sense of connection to the creator. I'm curious if Substack has thought about like potentially introducing new ways to monetize content or that relationship beyond subscribing. Yeah, I think we're right now very focused on proving out the subscription model and making it as good as it can be on the platform. But we definitely um, are watching and learning from what other writers are doing on the platform. So one of the things I see that seems to be popular is inviting people to like a private community, whether it's like a Slack or a Discord and making that a benefit for paid subscribers. A lot of people have merch stores, which I think is fun for like a writer. And so yeah, you can picture something like that. Or um, sometimes people ask us about being able to sell like a content product, like one off. So whether it's like a research report or a book or something like that. And yeah, those are all things I can imagine being really beneficial to writers as we continue to think about. Ultimately, I think our mission is make it possible for writers to to be establish an independent lifestyle. And so there are a lot of different ways we could do that. But right now we're really focused on the subscription model. 
Totally. Got it. There's also the super peer. And I think there's some other platforms that have done similar where you can pay for just the creator's time. Hey, can I get on a 30 minute phone call? <laughs> Which could be an interesting, you could even make like a bidding marketplace for that. Yeah, monetizing attention is something for open source for sure, I think it would be really um, important to have. Yep. Great. In the last 10 minutes, I'd love to take some audience questions for Nadia. So if you have a question, just pop it into the chat here. We'll start with this question from Rodrigo, which is in the Q&A. He asked, do you know about writers telling fiction stories and making real money from that? For instance, screenwriters adapting their work for newsletters. And I actually want to up-level that from that question as well and just ask about what are the categories um, of content that do really well on Substack? And yeah, I'll just ask that. Yeah. So yeah, we do have fiction writers on Substack. I think the ones that are making significant money are not necessarily writing and publishing fiction on Substack, but are like well-known fiction authors that also have a newsletter. Uh, I'm just saying that off the top of my head. I'm not, I haven't exactly looked at the numbers, but um, we do have a, more fiction subsects than people might realize. And then your question was about... Content categories that uh, work really well. Categories. Yeah. So some of the, if we look at like the, at subsect globally, like the things that are going to make a lot of money are from an absolute sense are going to be things about like politics or finance and which is unsurprising, I think because, or business newsletters, because their, their audience are people that can like literally like expense their subscription mm -hmm. to their employer. But then there are, there's still like a very fat tail in the front of writers that are making money in, in other sorts of categories. People that have like personal newsletters, I think tend to be, I, I guess I would price maybe on, on the lower end of things. But then like when we have so, a few surprising categories, like sports, faith ends up being like a big one of, mm. I had no idea there were like faith influencers of like sort of like modern preacher types that that are doing well on Substack. I'm trying to think about else. Music definitely has its own following and food. Food is definitely popular on Substack as well. So yeah, some of those categories I think are like expected and some of them are like totally new and, and unfamiliar to me. But yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating how every form of mass communication develops its own form of like TV gives you televangelists, but Substack gives you something so much better. I, I love the fake yeah. newsletters. There's yeah. so many good ones. I think fiction is really interesting because historically, at least like during the Victorian period, serialized fiction was really big and you would write every chapter as like a a weekly thing that would appear in a newspaper and, and people would get hooked and want to know what happens next. Like I think Vanity Fair was written this way. And that's why a lot of Victorian novels are so long. They just keep going forever. But it, it's interesting to think about that being adapted to a newsletter format. Totally. Really they were like Grey's Anatomy before TV. They just always had to <laughs> keep the audience hooked. Always a cliffhanger. True. Subscription right. model. It never exactly. ends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love this question from Michael Murphy. Any platforms creating audience credentials like qualifications to respond to a maintainer or creator? Yeah. You could have roles um, built in. Yeah, I want to say, I think there's some that will weight the value of what you're saying based on your reputation. Like I think Stack Overflow does this, which is like a Q&A site for developers where the more reputation you have, then the more, it's like, the more your answer counts. I personally would, I wanted to see GitHub do something like this for like where you can make a contribution or a maintainer could elect to say you can make a contribution if you like <laughs> learn how to open a port. There's it's sort of like basic um, yeah. ed education stuff across contributing to all open source that like you need to show that you can do this before like I, I'm not mm. going to personally help you with it. That's the bar. It seems like, yeah. But then there's obviously so many like other implications of then doesn't mean that some people can't contribute. And, but I would be interested to see something like that. And yeah, we don't have anything like that at, at Substack right now. Or even just like a captcha where you have to solve FizzBuzz in order to submit your pull request. <laughs> yeah, that would, uh, that'd be good. Uh, the, another kind of, oh, go ahead, Lee. Oh, I was just going to quickly say, I think Discord does this. I'm not too familiar with the platform, but I think you can set up different like audience or community roles, roles within Discord mm -hmm. that have different levels of permissions. And then within the media world, I think the information does this as well, where in order to leave a comment, you actually have to apply and be approved. And so the comments, like they're of a really high quality because each one, each commenter has been vetted by the information. Yeah, I call these um, like 
one-way mirrors in, in the book product hunt was another example of this where not everyone can can comment but everyone can like i guess upvote it and yeah i think there's there's some valuable design pattern there for picturing like there's some stage or yeah there's some viewing area where like approved people are clubhouse actually is this as well and like, you could be like invited on stage to have a conversation or you're like in the audience listening but yeah having that separation is can be really valuable totally Speaking of the siloed community thing, Clubhouse is another app that probably could benefit from a slightly more siloed approach, just given all the controversy. Yes. Just neither here nor there. (laughs) (laughs) Another, actually, another platform that does roles really interestingly is Wikipedia. The whole structure of moderators and moderators that kind of moderate other moderators and editors and all that kind of stuff is really fascinating there. And I feel like there could be, it would be actually really interesting to think of a paid newsletter community as having some wiki-ish type elements where people could Mm. contribute beyond just like leaving a comment at the bottom. But maybe there's more evergreen worlds of content within Substacks that you pay to get access to. And then you can also contribute to once you're at a certain level. And maybe you just, it shows up in the form of reputation of the community, or maybe you even get like a discount or a free subscription you could earn after a while. It could be interesting. Yeah, that'd be really cool. It'd be cool if there was like some, especially for like, really prolific writers have been writing for a long time i can picture there being like some sort of like wiki or archive or something that is curated by readers of here are the best posts or like here's how this person thinks about whatever that'd be fun yeah another question from jen is around open source are there ways for open source maintainers to make a living from doing open source it seems like a lot of the major projects are backed by a large company yeah Yeah. So for like really, there's like a world of like very big projects that are more corporate backed, like Android or something like that. But then there's this very long tail of individual developers who are maintaining projects that are much smaller, but still very widely used. And so I think that's where like some of the interesting changes are right now in open source. You can make money as an open source developer, but the answer is not super easy or clear right now. It is definitely getting easier. Um, I've been looking at that space for five years now, and um, it has definitely changed dramatically since I first started poking around, but the, I guess like a common path might be getting hired by a company that will let you work on open source part-time, which is less than ideal because at some point you, if they change their minds, then you're at the whim of your employer. But um, that's something that we see a lot. And then GitHub has last year, they launched a new product called sponsors, which is a way for people to sponsor developers of the projects that they care about and use. They just announced last week the ability for companies to sponsor developers. So I feel like that's a really interesting model that that mirrors this like transition of thinking of open source developers as any other sort of creator. And now they can build subscription businesses on GitHub. And so far, it seems to be going really well. Totally. That's very interesting. Do they use Patreon to do subscriptions too? Like, is that uh, Yeah, some of them do. Yeah, before GitHub sponsors came out, there were a handful of open source developers that were using Patreon. There were a couple like outliers that were doing like really well on Patreon. But then I think when sponsors came out, a lot of them moved over there because there's just things that GitHub can do natively that uh, Patreon can't. Makes sense. One thing about creator, like open source creators making money that is interesting to me is it's, it's mirrors. Like there's a lot of bloggers in the early days just wrote for free and maybe they had some ads, but it was just like this free thing. And then now there's this trend towards subscriptions as being the primary way to monetize. What, do you think that people might move to some sort of closed source thing where it's like a weird version of SaaS almost, except for it's just source code you're subscribing to and like businesses pay for it and the libraries are better because the creator gets to focus on it full time and maybe build up a little bit more infrastructure and improvements? Or do you think that's probably not going to happen? I don't think opens the widespread availability of open source code is going to go away anytime soon because everyone just like sees what the benefit is to having this shared public infrastructure that everyone can rely on. But I think the separating, and I, I talked about this a little bit in the book, like the separating out of open source code as being like totally free to consume at basically zero marginal cost is different from like, how do I make money contributing to the project? How do I like monetize my time or my attention as a developer? So I th- I could see a world where code is, I, I think any attempts to limit who can use your open source code are, are like misguided long-term because of the widespread adoption of open source, but then yeah. maybe having a more closed environment for con- uh, contributions where it's you have to pay to make a suggestion or only like a certain number of people can can right. contribute to this. I could see that being like interesting in the future. 
Yeah, the sponsorship says maybe one version of that a little bit because if a company sponsors your project, you're probably going to answer their email. <laughs> Yes, they might cancel exactly. Or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, totally. The thing I had in mind was just like, it would be crazy if GitHub built basically like behind the paywall features where it's just, hey, you just got a behind the paywall repo and there's like a way to integrate it into your source. There's an easy workflow and it just, I don't know, that would be, it probably wouldn't yeah. work, but I'm just curious, like what would that even look like? Because there may be demand for developers to not have to be full-time employees of a company and they want to have a one-to-many relationship to their economic support, whatever. Sponsors is probably a better solution, but... Yeah, it I think it'd be really interesting. interesting. Yeah. It's it's fun to see this stuff develop in open source right now because right now there's probably some open source developer watching this and like screaming on the inside because they're just so this is I think in some ways it, it butts up against a lot of what people think of when they think of open source or what it's supposed to be. But I think it's important to in some senses evolve some of these things. They don't have to be the exact same way forever. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I think the the shift in open source mirrors a lot of what is happening in content creation in general on the internet, which is that I think in the early days of the internet, for instance, like what Nathan was saying, a lot of people just did it for the love of creating. There was no expectation that they would commercialize it and earn any money from it. For, for a long time, I was blogging for free. I still blog for free. But back on Zanga, LiveJournal, Tumblr days, there was no way to monetize your content creation. And so everyone involved in those communities was just doing it for the love of creating something. And I think open source is very similar. And now I think there is a possibility to actually make a living and make income from doing this. And so everyone is in a stage of figuring out, okay, what is the right monetization model for me? Like, what is the model that sort of aligns my incentives with the incentives of my audience? How do I balance the tension between growth versus monetization? I think that's why all of these questions are so relevant now. Definitely. Yeah, I feel like we're just really at the very beginning of it all. And it's there's a lot of just pre-existing beliefs that need to be unwound around should content be free? Do I have to do this for money? Or And just so many interesting questions. But I think the opportunity space is so huge that we'll be seeing very interesting new innovations in, in the future. Absolutely. I think that's a great note to wrap up on. I think we're still at the very beginning of the whole creator economy. If we want to read more of your work, Nadia, where should we go to sign up or where, yeah, what can we visit to find out more of your work? Uh, Twitter is probably easiest to find all the other links. I'm at Nayafia, N-A-Y-A-F-I-A. Awesome. Just linked in the chat. And her book is out. Her book is out on Amazon. Check it out. It's called Working in Public. So check that out. And thank you so much for being here today. This was awesome. And I learned a ton from our conversation and I'm sure all of our guests did as well. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me and thanks for joining us.